In the winter of 1974, Joanne Coughlin would disappear. For years, the mystery behind what happened to Joanne has haunted not only her family, but the entire Northeast Ohio community. Local rumor says that Joanne is in one of the many quarries along the Ohio-Pennsylvania border. Multiple investigators have looked into Joanne's case, with Detective Sergeant Dave Sweeney being the latest to throw his hat in the ring. Joanne's disappearance was thought to be the oldest missing persons investigation in the region. But as Detective Sweeney started his investigation, he would learn that might not be the case. Welcome to part two of Creepy White Van, the podcast's series on the missing people of Youngstown, Ohio, and Detective Sergeant Dave Sweeney's work. I'm Bailey. And I'm Lily. And you've come to the right place if you've heard all of the other true crime stories, but you still want to listen to more, and especially this one, because I'm very intrigued. Yeah, this is a juicy one today. (laughs) (laughs) And we have two cases kind of mixed into one. And we'll get into it more, but we're going to start by focusing on Joanne because let's take ourselves to Youngstown, put ourselves in Detective Sweeney's shoes. I we're love trying to solve. I know. I love it. Sorry. We're trying <laughs> to solve to Joanne's case and we somehow become entangled into another one. So if you missed the first part of the series, go back and listen to last week's episode and listen to the case of Lena Reyes Geddes. You're not going to want to miss that one. Um, You don't necessarily have to listen to it, but it'll make sense of like who Detective Dave Sweeney is, why we're investigating, like we're not really investigating, but why we're chatting about missing people of Youngstown. And it's actually like an uber crazy story. So I really recommend it. But if not, start here, go back, whatever, listen to them all. But now let's jump into Joanne's case. Joanne's early life is um, pretty well documented. She's described as being that beautiful, popular girl in school. She was on the homecoming court. Oh, yeah. Yeah, know. she's like the it girl, you know? She, like, everyone liked her. She was nice. She was gorgeous. And she was graduating high school and kind of didn't really know what to do with her life. Very fair. Very yeah, fair. I mean, yeah, exactly. Especially during that time, and it was in the... um 1970s so experiences and options were opening up for women and different things like that so but one thing Joanne truly fell in love with was her community theater and being an actress oh that's so cool though yeah she was getting a lot of the main roles and like doing a lot of fun stuff in the community theater and that's kind of where she found like her her group you know like I mean yeah of course Joanne began dating a man who (laughs) turned out to be married (laughs) a man (laughs) I know the way you paused after man, I was like, oh, we hate that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, well, I'll tell you why we don't like this because this man was married. Uh, Well, we now we extra hate it. Yeah, we extra hate him. (laughs) And he also got Joanne involved in kind of the underground crime and party and drug scene of the city. So like, just not a good fella at all. 
no literally he sounds like he's already the worst. I can already tell I'm not gonna like this dude well yeah he doesn't have too much to do because with this story because this relationship was really rough on Joanne she was losing friends um I think just like the party scene and the drug scene probably got a lot for her along with dating someone who's married is probably I mean that's (laughs) you're already dating a man who shouldn't be dating yeah and then and you're like, probably being led on by him being like I'll leave my wife because I love you oh, and you sure. know manipulation so. grooming all of that about two months before Joanne's disappearance in October of 1974 Joanne actually left this boyfriend and distanced herself from the city's drug scene which like go Joanne I was gonna say like thank you yes Joanne actually began dating a new guy who we stan oh good dave she starts dating dave and he and this point in her life is like a really big turning point and dave is actually a tv reporter for the town so i think that helps later on as joanne goes missing and you know dave's able to kind of muster up some dave's just like dave is number one and we love okay i'm excited for this i'm glad she dumped other dude yeah and we're never given a name for him i'm sure people of Youngstown know but it was never like named anywhere so okay that dude so fast forward to Christmas of 1974 and Joanne spent the day with her family and they said everything seemed fine they had a wonderful day together um Joanne was in a great mood she saw her nieces nephews family everything was great and so Joanne is at her parents house and is like all right I gotta go and I have to work tomorrow. And it is so funny because her mom reminds me of her, my mom, because her mom was like, you have to work the day after Christmas. And she's like, yes. Mom. I swear parents think you're on like perpetual school schedules for the rest of your lives. So it's like you graduate and they're like, okay, but like, it's, it's winter. So you should have this time off. And it's like, no, <laughs> exactly. And so Joanne had said like, yeah, I have to work the 26th and the 27th, which was Thursday and Friday. Fast forward to Friday. We're doing a lot of jumping around here, but sorry about that. What age is is she now at this point? If you know, or a few years after high school graduation. So Joanne at this point in her life is 21, fresh out of high school and started working, doing all that fun stuff. But she had like a lot of things planned for these couple days after Christmas. Oh, okay. Joanne went to work on that Friday and she actually told all like a lot of her coworkers, her plans for the day, which was to go to the spa after work because she had just recently got a membership there, which to reach yourself. I was going to say, that sounds nice. And she actually invited some of her coworkers to go with her. Like, do you guys afterwards want to go to the spa with me? And um, most of them had plans and weren't able to go. But I feel like it's good to note that she like was inviting people along with her. Like this wasn't like a, yeah, like she was definitely had places to be. Yeah. And this was planned. Okay. Okay. Good to know. So after work, Joanne went to a store in downtown Youngstown and bought a new blanket for her bed and mailed her health insurance premium, which like, if that's not adulting, I don't know what is. That literally sounds probably what I did last weekend. I know. (laughs) So while out, she actually ran into her friend Greta, who lived in the same apartment complex as Joanne, and they kind of got to chatting and- she told Greta again, she was so excited about the spa trip. Every person who like saw Joanne that day was like, yeah, she said she was going to the spa. Oh, and I was like, see, like that's, that's me. Cute. Like that shows you like that innocence though. Like even though yeah. yes, she's like adulting, like you said, it's like, yeah, oh, she's so excited. And I don't know. Well, and she told Greta that after she was going 
going to the spa. She was swinging by her boyfriend's house and they were going to watch a movie. And then she was planning to meet back up with Greta and go to a party later that night. So homegirl had some plans. I was going to say she had places to be. Yes. And so before heading to the spa, which was located in Boardman, which is like a city outside of Youngstown. So she had to travel a bit. She did call her boyfriend, Dave, and told him that she was going to come by his house after the spa for their movie night. And so Dave reported that he waited up for like hours for Joanne, but -hmm. eventually he fell asleep because she just like never arrived at her house or his house. And so that kind of led to like the next morning he woke up and was like, where's Joanne? And so it hurt. Exactly. And so by Sunday, Joanne's family, her friends and Dave were like really worried because they had all kind of chatted with each other between Saturday and Sunday. And we're like, we have not seen Joanne and we haven't heard from her and they just didn't know like what to do. Um, So 9am hit on Monday morning and Joanne's workplace, their phones were ringing off off the what is what is that I don't the know hook. I have a cell phone <laughs> the hook oh my gosh I'm just mad you said off the actually I don't really know what this place <laughs> I, is. I was like I, so I was like I don't know like the wall I don't know anyway oh my god the phones at her work were ringing off the hook because her mother was calling her boyfriend was calling her friends other family were calling to see if Joanne had showed up for her 9 a.m she was talking to so many people right before she didn't show up to anything so that is weird well she hadn't shown up for his shift though and so that's when Joanne's mom and everyone kind of knew like something bad has happened So on December 30th, 1974, which was that Monday and three days after Joanne was last seen and after the calls to her office, Joanne's mom went to the Youngstown Police Department and reported her daughter missing. And although Joanne's family and friends were worried, the police were not. The police told her mom that it was going to take 48 hours before they could start investigating the case. And they made it pretty clear that they had believed that Joanne probably had just run off, which is definitely I, a theme of this investigation. I just want to say, I am so tired of hearing that excuse from police because every it's at this point, you would think they would hear people in their little podcasts say that that's such a worn out excuse. And they'd be like, okay, why are we still saying that? Like, why are we still? Mm-hmm. Cause that is such a, uh, like, well, that's not even like a true thing. Like they no, can take and also, for any time and people don't run away. <laughs> I was going to say, and also technically it already been two days since she like, didn't show up to things that yep. she was supposed to show up to. Uh, we love, we love inaction from law enforcement. <laughs> we love inaction. <laughs> well, with that shitty response from the police, Joanne's family and friends were like not having it and they knew they needed to like act quickly and figure out where yeah. she was, which good for them. So Dave, boyfriend of the year, retraced Joanne's steps on the 27th. Oh, he called nice. the spa. He was able to confirm that she had been there and signed in and he was able to gather a group of friends and they drove up and out to the spa and looked around the parking lot, looked around the surrounding areas, hoping to find her car, Joanne, some type of clue that she was there, but they found absolutely nothing. Mm. One weird thing to note that is stated a couple of times, but like nothing is ever confirmed is that later on Joanne's niece claims that that signature that the spa said was 
used to like confirm Joanne was there was not in Joanne's signature at all. And she, the niece said that she was able to confirm that none of the employees actually saw Joanne or could remember seeing Joanne. It's a weird tidbit where interesting did joanne make it to the spa but it doesn't really make sense as the story goes on of like why would someone check her in um to like i guess make it seem like she wasn't like taken or something but still like how did they even know that's where she was going unless she was like physically already in there yeah so there's a lot of questions surrounding that but i don't think it's just mentioned in almost every source but it's not going to help solve this doesn't necessarily case, think. lead to yeah I see what you're saying yeah. well Joanne's mom who I wrote <laughs> chef's kiss <laughs> called Joanne's bank to let them know that her daughter was missing and to flag her account for anything unusual and Mark. this was because about two months before Joanne vanished she had come into some cash because she had been into a car accident and was awarded a settlement of $3,400, which is about $1,800 now. Oh, shoot. So yeah, she had some money in her account. And I think almost all of that money was still in her account. Like she hadn't really spent it. Yeah. Cause if she had just gotten it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, thank goodness. Joanne's mom is a literal genius and a badass and amazing (laughs) because literally the next day, a woman shows up at the bank and is trying to say she's Joanne and wants to withdraw $800 from the account. And so that's four days after Joanne's disappearance. And the teller actually told the woman like, Hey, why don't you come in? Your mom is looking for you. Why don't you call her? Like, are you okay? Do you need something? And the woman was like, I don't worry. I'm going to call my mom once I get to Florida, but I need this money Florida. to go to Florida. <laughs> yeah. And again, we're in Youngstown, Ohio. Like, where do you go? Um, okay. Why are we going to Florida? Or are we going on a vacation? Yeah. Like, what do you do? Like, like, and also why like 800? That's like kind of a random amount. Yeah. I couldn't tell if that was all that they were able to get out at once. You know how like there's a limit I now. I felt like 800 might. Yeah. And so the teller then told this woman, like, you're going to have to go actually to a different bank on the other side of town. Like the transaction doesn't work here or something like along those lines um, to get the money out of the account. But the woman never showed up at the other bank. Mm. The bank manager though, and this is something that we're like seeing in all these older cases about like people wanting to like mind their business because the bank manager didn't call Joanne's family initially because he was like, this is a personal thing. And I don't need to get involved. See, if, if it's to me, it's no longer a personal thing when she's like officially already been announced as missing. Mm-hmm. That's not like a personal thing. You might want to report that. Like, well, a week later, though, he saw in the newspaper the, Joanne's picture confirming that she was still missing. And that sparked him to be like, maybe I should call Joanne's mom. Oh, my people. Okay, sure. Like I say, take it to 100. Take it to a hundred right say, away. Panic, panic. Dial it back. Literally panic. God, I'm, I, gonna, I'm giving the worst advice. I don't even care. Panic. Well, I freak out. Freak out. Panic. I, I just think if someone seems suspicious and they're coming in to take out money, worst or best case scenario, it actually is Joanne, and you just you know you were just rightfully double checking. Worst case scenario, which is clearly what is happening, is it's not Joanne. <laughs> Well, once Joanne got a hold of the bank or Joanne's mom got a hold of the bank manager, she (laughs) grabbed some stuff and went to the bank 
because she went up to the teller and showed the teller a picture of Joanne and was like, was this the woman? And the teller was like, no, Uh, that was not Joanne. uh, And the teller was able to show the mother a signature from the lady. It wasn't Joanne's signature. mm -hmm. Um, But the teller was able to kind of give a description of the woman. She was very disheveled and they thought that she was on drugs. And so that day the police were called and they did an interview with the teller about the incident and three days later we would actually find out who that woman was because of a police informant who was able to id the woman who was pretending to be joanne oh shoot okay so this woman has never been publicly named she told police that the only reason she had joanne's information and was pretending to be here was because two men had given her Joanne's stuff and had asked her to try to get that money out of the account and then they would meet her afterwards to like split it these two men we do know and that's Robert Shugart and Howard Rodriguez these two men were very well known to the law enforcement oh Um, we got some criminals on our hands yes so they were brought into the police station for questioning and just a little background on Shugart and Rodriguez they were actually already suspected of being involved with several murders and missing people in the city yeah great guys loved them (laughs) you said great guys so Um, they were linked to three murders from 1973 through 75 and all of these victims were known to have quote loose lips end quote in the city's drug underground um i'm all okay so they did it i mean they did it (laughs) yeah (laughs) this is like one of those unsolved cases where like everybody knows what happens but but like they can't prove it or something well also the police literally were like they just didn't care about joanne so they didn't follow through with anything and now it's a little late So the police weren't um, the only ones who knew these men, though. Joanne's sketchy ex, who was married, actually lived in the same apartment complex as Shugart. Something, though, that fact was not known by police. It was found out by local journalists who were working the case. So the police didn't even, wait, so the local journalist found that out. Oh, the local journalist did, like, all the work for this. Bro. Wow. Anyway. (laughs) It was also likely that not only Joanne's sketchy ex knew the men, but that Joanne probably knew either one or both of them through her ex and through being part of like the underground city scene. She'd even been to a party in 1974, months before her missing, before she went missing at one of the murdered men's house that Shugart and Rodriguez were linked to. Oh, okay. So alarm bells right there. Yeah. Ring-a-ding-ding police. (laughs) They're like, she's in Florida. They're like, no, she just decided to run away, even though she was These just men could have been like, house. we killed her. And they would have been like, no, you didn't. She just wanted, she's, she just wanted to go to Hollywood. <laughs> she wanted to be an actress. Excuse me. <laughs> that like, how dare she, how dare she be a how woman? Dare she run away. How dare she be a woman? Oh my God. Well, so <laughs> Shugart and Marguerite, what? Shugart and Rodriguez told the police they had found Joanne's belongings at a drug party of course 
And oddly enough, though, they were the only two people on the planet who even remembered the have like this party existed. We found her stuff at a party that we only threw with each other and then coerced her into being there and took her stuff. Duh. But even funnier, though, and maybe even more odder is that the police, although they were unable to confirm the party and they couldn't find any other witnesses to say like, oh, yeah, this happened. They believed the guys and that Joanne probably was at that party. Bro, I'm so tired. Why? Why Why do you just believe them? You can't confirm anything. (laughs) Well, they're men and we have to trust the men over the woman, right? We love it. Yeah, you're right. I forgot that was in in the uh, constitution or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) In the constitution. I don't know. That's the first document that came into my mind. Well. This is sad. This is where people like, if you need to get a drink, get a drink. If you need to take a nap, take a nap because you're just going to get angrier. I've raged. I've wanted to rage. The men were questioned and for some reason, they never had to give the police an alibi for the day of Joanne's disappearance. And then get this, they were never questioned again. Like even, (laughs) sorry, I'm laughing because this is so absurd. Literally, even just like, making them do I know polygraphs aren't even like good they're obviously not a way to like tell one way or the other but like even just making them do that or something the fact that you literally like so what what happened oh we found her stuff at a party all right you're free to go like but Lily Lily you're thinking too hard Joanne just wanted a new life why why would she get up and leave dude no she personally handed me her wallet and said hey I'm gonna start over in Florida I'm starting from scratch like take my stuff Yeah. And I took all of her money and she said, I'm going to go be an actress. And the police were like, checks out. That's great work, guys. Literally doesn't question it at all. Like, okay. Yeah. I honestly, I believed him. He had a trustworthy face. Like who? I just, oh, this is gross to hear that they didn't even like try. They literally could not care less about Joanne. They did not care. Absolutely did not care. It's one of the most disgusting things I've seen. It's stupid. Well, and because like, really that's where the case went cold because you know, when you don't try it all, nothing's going to happen. Well, after the, um, very hard work of the police to question Shugart and Rodriguez, the case went cold. I don't know how it went cold. They were working that's so hard. Weird. I thought they were and doing so that was for about a month. It was pretty cold until a call was later made to WBW's Dan Ryan show which was like a local show where people just like called in and, you know, I don't know. I don't know what they did in the olden days. In the olden days. I mean, radio was really big, of course, in the seventies. And there's like fun talk radio shows that I'm sure everyone like, it was like probably one of those that everyone tuned into at this time of the day. And everyone was like, I got to talk on this radio show. It was just like one of the exciting things. Yeah. So the show was known for like people to call in and say stuff. And Joanne's family had been calling in ever since she went missing to be like, Hey, Joanne's still missing. Like, please call us, you know, do that. And so one day the show gets a call from a man and this guy is like, Oh yeah. That night that that woman went missing. And you know what? I'm sure that guy was like that broad that went missing. (laughs) She, I heard screaming screaming near Villa Maria road. I don't know why I gave them like a Southern accent, but for people who don't live in Ohio, Ohioans have a fake Southern accent. And I just need you to know about it. Ohio has a weird 
I don't know. It really depends where you're from in Ohio, if you have an accent or not. It's, it's for weird. some reason people get like Southern accents and we are pretty, <laughs> pretty not South at all, but it happens. So anyway, so yeah, like I said, the man calls in and says the night that Joanne vanished on Villa Maria road, people heard a woman screaming. Um, and so, that's very important information. Yeah. And so the police went out to this location. I can't believe they even took this seriously, to be honest. But the police went out there um, to that location where the man heard the screaming and went to several homes and asked if they had seen or heard anything that night. And the police concluded that they couldn't confirm there was a woman screaming that night. Mm. Hard work, as usual. We love them. (laughs) And so five years later. Oh. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're taking a long jump. Five years later, the main detective on the case and the one who interviewed those people I just told you about where they couldn't confirm if they heard a woman sat down with my main source for this episode, WVTV's Andrea Wood, who is the baddest badass in the world besides Joanne's mom, (laughs) because I'm about to tell you about the greatest journalistic takedown I've ever seen in my life. Oh, we love when that happens. I'm excited to hear that. Well, and as I mentioned earlier, there was a journalist who kind of basically got all the information that the public has that the police just didn't do. And she sits this guy down for just the best moment of my life. (laughs) And so during this interview, Andrea Wood was you know asking questions she did a 30 minute segment on like what's been going on with Joanne's case why can't we find her should be should we be worried and he reiterated you know we couldn't confirm there was a woman screaming you know Joanne probably left on her own accord you know we just don't know just keep saying the same thing over and over and so Andrea the most amazing person in the world said well so I actually went and interviewed those same families on Villa Maria Road, and they actually told me that they told you not only did they hear a woman screaming, they saw a woman being dragged into a car. What? Huh? That that is important. That sound yes. I made is not human. Well, and then this wonderful police officer, detective—I don't even want to call him that. This is a random guy. He said. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what they told us too, but we couldn't confirm that was Joanne. That's what we meant by that. So basically going back on what he said, how he didn't hear anything and now saying, well, actually we might've heard something, but like it couldn't be confirmed. Their thing was, oh yeah, they heard screams, but we didn't know if it was Joanne or not. So we, so we couldn't confirm it. But like all of them said that. So, but actually Joanne just left. She just wanted to go live her life. Oh, this is such a frustrating case. Yes. Um, it was the best like backtrack on a lie. It was so, oh, it was a takedown. <laughs> it was amazing. And I'll actually have the, um, this is again, like I mentioned, my main source, WTV, WVTV's coverage of this case. Um, and it's the original Kate, like um, stories from the 1970s and 80s. So it's a really great resource. And we'll have that linked on our website. Um, so you guys can go ahead and watch it. The report found that the incident of the woman screaming was on December 27th at 10 PM, the day that Joanne had gone missing. Mm. So, so all of that 1000% sounds like it links up. Well, and sadly, that's kind of all I can tell you about Joanne's case through this, like, 
the 70s and 80s. 47 years later, Joanne's case still remains unsolved, and she hasn't been heard or seen since that cold December night of 1974. Her family did have her declared legally dead in 1985, though. Her bank account was never touched again, and along with Joanne, her car has never been found. Mm. A little aftermath on Shugart and Rodriguez, who definitely did it. Um, (laughs) They were never charged with anything uh, regarding Joanne's disappearance. And I tried to look into what happened to them, but I can't find anything on their lives after being questioned by the police. But I did find some like mugshots. So they definitely went to jail at some point, (laughs) but I can't really find anything, but I don't know. So, and back to that woman who was the one pretending to be Joanne at the bank, nothing came from that because the police were hoping that she would like flip and be like, Shugart and Rodriguez murdered her. But she never did that. So they never charged her with anything and they couldn't charge Shugart and Rodriguez with anything because it was just kind of like he said, she said if they had Joanne's stuff. Well, that woman definitely should have still been arrested for trying Mm. to. Well, and Joanne's family really pushed for her to be arrested to at least get like something. I think just some physical justice is what they wanted. But the police were like, no. Because Joanne walked away from her life. I can't stress this enough. This that's such bull crap. That's uh, well. In 2010, there was a potential development in Joanne's case that's kind of crazy, and attention was brought back to her case in like a really surprising twist. Investigators from Huntington Beach, California, reached out to the Youngstown Police to see if they could identify a picture of a woman in the collection of Rodney Alcala, aka the Game Show Killer. California game show I'm sorry what (laughs) so just a little backstory on who Rodney Alcala is really really quickly he's convicted of eight murders one of being a 12 year old girl and like murdering women in general you're trash but murdering a 12 year old girl you are oh that's a cockroach I feel like that's worse than trash and I hate you you're scum it's suspected though that Alcala definitely had more victims In the middle of his murder spree, he was a contestant on the dating game show. And if you don't know what that show is, it's like where the woman hides behind a panel and then she like will be like, bachelor number three, what date would you take me on? on valentine's day i know exactly what you're talking about i would take you to chick-fil-a and then we go see avengers on a game and it sounds like your valentine's day no i don't (laughs) eat at (laughs) chick-fil-a i'm a popeyes girl it definitely i know exactly what type of game show you're talking about like i can literally picture it in my mind's eye of like the like the just the 70s grainy look of the tv like everyone like standing there in their little bell bottoms exactly (laughs) well alcala was bachelor number one and he won he won the date with the woman and so she Um, never saw him right like once again she never got to see him until the end but once she met him she refused to go on the date with him because he creeped her out Oh, well, rightfully so. He's a serial killer. Well, she didn't know. (laughs) Which ladies, but she did because everyone has this thing I like to call your creepy radar. And when it buzzes, it's time to say goodbye. I'm going to go over here. You stay over there and do your weird creepy. Oh yeah, no. I would for sure. Her creepy radar was like going off the charts. And it's crazy that she was able to just like get that sense of the feeling for him. 
and like have no idea that he was literally in the mur- like middle of his murder spree. She's like, no. Yeah. And so it's funny too, cause like she heard him and like, once she saw him though, something about it all creeped her out. Well, that's how he got his nickname, the game show killer. Okay. And so Alcala was also a photo- photographer. I put in quotes because everyone's a freaking photographer. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's and probably how he lured his victims, honestly. It is. And after his arrest, they had found hundreds of pictures of women that he had taken. Law enforcement were able to identify some of the women in the pictures and confirm some were alive. He had some pictures of his victims. There are dozens of women, though, who have not been identified. And in 2010, the Huntington Beach police, like I said, had released over a hundred of those pictures to see if the public could help identify these women and see if they were alive, if they were missing, um, to try and figure out if he, he had something to do with it. And, um, the California police reached out to the Youngstown police because they felt like a woman in the picture looked a lot like Joanne. And it kind of made sense to a lot of people. Like she was an actress, aspiring actress. Maybe he was like, come, I'll give you free headshots. Yeah, like, maybe he was driving through town. He said, I know someone, or he said he was a talent scout maybe mm-hmm. or something. But the Youngstown police were able to determine that the woman in the photo was not Joanne. Okay, so it wasn't her. But although it, like, sucks that there wasn't, like, a formal, like, finished thing, it at least got some attention back on the case for a little bit to help remind people. And this was thought to be the oldest case in Youngstown. And it's very infamous. Like, people in Northeast Ohio know about Joanne. And there's a lot of local rumor, like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, and this is truly, I usually believe local rumor because it about like crimes because they usually have some truth in it. Yeah. But a lot of people think that Joanne, along with her car, were thrown into one of the many quarries on the Ohio Pennsylvania border. And that's where she sits to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, they think that over time, because in the quarries, it was very hard to, um, search them especially northeast ohio in the winter it was cold it was frozen over and they're pretty deep especially for the 70s so it would take years before technology would improve enough that they could like sonar scan it Mm -hmm. and um they couldn't find anything but there are a couple detectives that do think she's in one of them that either just hasn't been searched or over time like rocks and sediment and trash have covered it up so like a sonar wasn't ever going to show it it. isn't going to like uncover it right Mm mm-hmm And like I mentioned, for a long time, up until 2020, people thought this was the oldest missing persons case in Youngstown. Detective Sergeant Dave Sweeney was working on it and he was calling around, trying, which I think is awesome that he's like literally calling people and witnesses to try and solve it. Yeah. Like, yes, Dave Sweeney. See, I don't always talk smack about law enforcement. (laughs) Um, but so while he was following up with, uh, a person on on Joanne's case, that person kind of brought up like, yeah, was like Frank Cremelli and detective Mm -hmm. Sweeney was like, who? (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, who? (laughs) Well, it turns out Joanne's case wasn't the oldest missing persons case in Youngstown. And it kind of shows how disorganized the police force was back then because they kind of messed up with Frank's case. I'm so confused. Yeah. So listen to this. It was November of 2020 when Detective Sweeney received that call from an unnamed person with information on Joanne's case, along with information about Frank's case. 
Frank Cremelli actually is the oldest missing persons case of Youngstown. He went missing in 1969, five years before Joanne. So let me tell you a little bit about Frank and his story and like why we're just finding out Frank's been missing for so long. So Frank Cermelli was 21, just like Joanne, and he went missing from the Youngstown area around July 14th, 1969. Detective Sweeney was able to comb through police files and found that, in fact, Frank had a reported missing persons case in 1969 on file, but for some reason, the report never made it clear if he had been found and it was filed away like it was solved when it wasn't. And there was just some error that caused it to go unnoticed and kind of acted like it was solved. So Detective Sweeney being the badass of this story was able to confirm that Frank actually still had not been seen or heard from since 1969. Oh, shoot. Okay. So he hasn't been found either. Who, who messed up that day on the job? Like, did we find Frank? I don't remember. Okay. I'll just say yes. Checked as found. Like what? Well, not a lot's been reported on Frank, obviously, because it's kind of sadly a forgotten case. And A lot was going on in that time period in Youngstown and in America during the time that Frank went missing. I can't tell you a lot about who Frank was, but I can tell you, first of all, the man has style because the day he went missing, it's reported that he was last seen wearing Bermuda shorts, a button down shirt and some sandals. (laughs) Yes, Frank. He is. I know. I love it. (laughs) So the day Frank went missing again, July 14th, 1969, Frank went to the international tavern to meet up with some buddies and he drove his most prized possession, his 1968 Pontiac Grand Prix. Ooh. (laughs) And when I tell you like this man loves this car, I mean it because his car and his love for his car was noted in every news source about him. Like his family knew he was missing when his car was found without him in it. And they were like, Frank would have never left his car. Frank would have taken that. Frank might leave, but he would have taken his car with him. (laughs) And so on the July 14th date, he was last seen at that bar at 9 p.m. Days later on July 17th, Frank's mom reported him missing, which like moms for the win per usual. My mom would report me missing in like a heartbeat. Oh yeah, mine too. (laughs) And so Frank's car was found parked in the back of the International Tavern's parking lot, the bar he was at the last night that he was seen. And the car was unlocked and the windows were open, which is another thing that's weird because first of all, that's just weird in general. Cars aren't, you know, left in a state like that. Yeah, no. And again, like I mentioned, Frank loved, like that was his baby. He would have never left his car there unlocked in that condition. Because someone could have taken it. Yeah. Yeah. And he would have, wherever Frank was, he needed it to get around. So one thing to note about the car's location is that it was parked near a bluff that leads to a set of railroad tracks behind an old steel plant in that parking lot, which just sounds like a suspicious place to me. It literally sounds like somewhere where something not good is about to happen. Weird stuff always happens around railroad tracks. I mean, you call it a bluff. No one uses that term unless they're like, all right, meet me. Something bad happened. Yeah, Yeah, like, no, that sounds bad. (laughs) And unfortunately, this is kind of really all the information that's available about Frank's case. 
and at the moment, but again, because not really a lot was reported on about it. And so it's still unclear why Frank's case was basically forgotten by the Youngstown Police Department. His case was never entered into any of the missing persons databases, nor NamUs. He has now been added, though, to those da- databases, and his DNA has been entered into NamUs. Okay. So if a body, an unidentified body is found, hopefully we can trace it back to him. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, the detectives who worked and I can't even say worked, (laughs) that were assigned Joanne's case and just kind (laughs) of like did whatever they wanted, were also the ones assigned to Frank's case. Mm. And I think it also shows these officers true colors because from the beginning of Frank's missing persons case, they were quoted in different news sources saying that like, oh yeah, foul play was involved, but weird that Joanne ran away. So they're fine with admitting that because he was a guy, is what I'm assuming. Yeah. He I don't know why they hated away. Joanne so much. Well, one of the, and Frank too, like Joanne, you could assume they were like, oh, she was in the underground drug scene. Frank had a couple run-ins with the law, like nothing crazy where he had a record, but like he was also not in a great crowd. So you can't say one was like a model citizen and the other wasn't. They were both fine. I mean, at the end of the day, they're both people, you know? One of the other reasons, though, that Frank's case might have gone under the radar is because of the fact that in July of 1969, um, a lot was going on, like I mentioned, in Youngstown and the U.S. Two days after Frank went missing, Ohio native Neil Neil Armstrong, along with Buzz Aldrin, were headed to space and preparing to beat Russia to the moon. So I think that was where a lot of like the newspaper media's attention were. Yeah, like they were not focused on him. And then the next day after that, there was a big protest over racial disparities in the city of Youngstown that took up a lot of the media's attention. So you might be wondering, though, is this case connected to Joanne? And I think you can say yes, because the same detectives were on it and somehow the same witness brought both cases together. Um, Yeah, you're right. But locals aren't sure really local detectives and investigators along with the community really aren't sure if they're tied together. Um, it does seem odd that the person calling detective Sweeney about Joanne's case would bring up Frank. But when I watched the 1979, um, WVTV's coverage where I talked about Adrian Wood, the most badass woman in the world, um, <laughs> she mentioned the detective mentioned Frank's case. He said something along the lines that like, oh yeah, that fella who went missing in 69, we still don't know what happened to him. And so it like tied it together again. And again, that those were the, that's the same detective working on both cases. Sounds like but, they weren't really very well equipped to be working on these cases. No. And I know it was the seventies, but I don't know. So I'm not really sure I can give you a definite answer. And I don't know if we'll ever know if these cases are connected but I do know they're now linked forever because without Detective Sweeney working to solve Joanne's case, who knows when or if anyone would have ever noticed that Frank was still missing. He has loved ones who still don't know what happened to him. I was going to say, like, would that have ever even been uncovered if Detective Sweeney didn't start, like, working on Joanne's case? Like, I don't think so. Um, I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts, though, on what they think about these cases. Are they linked? What about that unnamed caller? Was that just a coincidence of mentioning Frank's name? Are you just as mad as I am that the police <laughs> did not give a shit about Joanne? They didn't take this seriously you at like all. Frank's style? Would you wear Bermuda shorts still? I also bought mom jeans. So off topic. I'm going to try the mom jeans 
trend the mom dream or uh, mom dream am I good the mom jean look honestly yes. it's a look I like it me too but yeah go yeah, ahead let us know on our Instagram <laughs> at creepy white van podcast and while you're there give us a follow of course but this is like continuing our coverage we'll have um two more episodes featuring detect our favorite detective Dave our favorite detective Sweeney along with the missing people of Youngstown so thank you all for listening and go eat a cheeseburger because I'm sad about Joanne and Frank but I'm sad that no one took Joanne's case seriously no it's heartbreaking If you want to see pictures of Joanne and Frank, check out our Instagram at creepywhitevanpodcast. And if you're interested about our sources or want to read more about the case, check out our website. Go to creepywhitevanthepodcast.com.